0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it,
1: San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The New Statesman Around the world, politicians turn to nationalism for power. We
0: were nationalists. are nationalist. Our nationalist. And we'll remain nationalist.
2: A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. If I consider Russia my homeland, this means that I love in Russian, contemplate and think, sing in Russian, and say that I believe in the spiritual forces of the Russian people.
1: Their vision of the nation is an exclusive one. It's based on being the right race, or religion, or ethnicity. The nation is closed to those who don't fit the description, or even to those who object to the description. Our answer is clear. We would like to preserve Europe for Europeans.
3: This also requires an effort from other countries. This is not only
0: something we would like, but that also we want, because it depends on us to preserve Hungary for Hungarians. The Chinese
2: people have been indomitable and persistent. We have the spirit of fighting the bloody battle against our enemies to the bitter end. In the face of this nationalistic and historical trend, all
0: efforts and tactics to divide the nation are doomed to
1: fail. It's proven politically potent and powerful. But is there another way? In this series, we'll look at nationalisms around the world and ask whether it's possible to counter them with a different kind of nationalism. Could the nation be inclusive? Could it be based on civic participation and liberal values? What would that look like? What would it mean?
2: Suddenly, many kinds of a classical liberal thinkers and liberal politicians was surprised to see how powerful nationalism was when it was employed by the right-wing politicians. And the idea, should we leave nationalism to the far right, to what extent some of the electoral defeats of the center and of the left can be explained by this, became extremely important question.
1: That's Ivan Krastev, noted political scientist. I'm also joined by Yasmin Serhan, who covers foreign affairs for TIME. If I'm going to give
3: Donald Trump credit for anything,
1: it's that I actually do think he's given a
3: lot of the Americans who support him this idea of community, especially when they're perceived as the sort of victim. And I think that's ultimately why these politicians latch on to that sort of nationalist narrative, because it's easier than providing solutions.
1: In this episode, we'll look at why this is a question worth asking and what's at stake on getting civic or liberal nationalism right. I'm delighted to begin this series with a conversation with Ivan Krastev. He is a political scientist and author of many books, including most recently, The Light That Failed, Why the West is Losing the Fight for Democracy. Ivan, thank you so much for
2: being with me today. Thank you very much for inviting.
1: So I wanted to start out by asking, I think it's quite clear why, for people listening to this podcast, why people on the political right would be interested in nationalism and why ethno-nationalism in particular has been an effective political strategy and ideology for many. But what I wanted to put to you was, do you think that it is also worth people in the center, people on the left, considering nationalism and considering what it could mean and what a more expansive nationalism could look like? Or do you think that nationalism has to be inclusive and limiting? In other words, is there merit in a conversation
2: reimagining nationalism at all? Listen, there is a very important reasons to talk about this. And one is because there is a major desire for more social cohesion in our societies. And this type of a civic type of nationalism is becoming much more attractive, not simply on the right, but you can see it on the left, on the center. From this point of view, what is happening in Ukraine in the last several months is a great example of the power of nationalism and exactly in the power of liberal nationalism, which was so typical for the 19th century. Mm. So this is what, in my view, has been changed. And the irony that in a certain way, European Union that built part of its legitimacy, its project on criticizing nationalism, trying to produce itself is very strongly anti-nationalistic. But it was the national flag of Ukraine that had been in many of the buildings, capitals of Europe, exactly because of the fact that in the moment of crisis, you can see the mobilization effect and this kind of creating of a national identity that helps the nation to defend itself.
1: Hmm. Backing up a little bit, you said that there's a strong desire for more social cohesion. We could spend hours speaking about why this is, but what are some of the reasons that you think that this is true and, and and that people are turning to nationalism in particular to find that social cohesion?
2: Listen, one of the paradoxes is that while we are very much enjoying the diversity of our societies, but the rise of social inequalities, the rise of different type of interdependency and interconnections, also very much higher freedom of all of us to choose where to live, what to read, how to live, who we are. Took the idea of the national identity out of the fact that it was simply the state, that it was taken for granted, and suddenly people started looking around and they start asking the questions, okay, I'm trying to ask who I am, but who are we as a society?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And this is why when you start asking these questions, you can come with different answers, but one of the answers is, can we redefine nationalism in the way to help us live together? I remember it was back in 1995, the famous American anthropologist Clifford Geertz was in Vienna in the Institute for Human Sciences, where I work now, and he was giving a talk about the future of the post-Cold War world. And in my view, he made a very important point. He said, listen, now everybody is talking about convergence. But in fact, what we're going to see with the end of the Cold War is going to be differences that are going to come to the service, idiosyncratic type of differences that people have forgotten about. And he said, the two most important questions that are going to shape our conversation is, what is a country if it is not a nation? And what is a culture if it is not a consensus? And yeah. in my view, this type of the two questions are very much at the heart of this new interest in nationalism that we're observing today.
1: Huh. And, and you think that that's also why, not just why people returned to nationalism, but why it's had so much staying power in political discourses and in politics all over the world?
2: Yeah, I do believe this is there. And of course, uh, the very idea of nationalism has been changing. And uh, Mm -hmm. you can reframe it very differently. One of the story was that for a certain period of time, and particularly in Europe, nationalism was so much connected with this type of an ethnic right-wing nationalism that basically brought the destructions of Europe in the 20th century that people have forgotten first the earlier parts of nationalism in which uh, the kind of nation building and creating a civic national identities was at the very heart of European modernity. And secondly, basically this was the mobilization of the nationalism to create the more cohesive societies in which people feel a stronger solidarity with each other, and mm-hmm. my feeling is this is what basically has been changed in our recent conversations.
1: And what do you think has reintroduced civic nationalism into the conversation?
2: Listen, first, one of them was that suddenly many kind of a classical liberal thinkers and liberal politicians was surprised to see how powerful nationalism was when it was employed by the right-wing politicians. And the idea, should we leave nationalism to the far right, to what extent some of the electoral defeats of the center and of the left can be explained by this, became extremely important question. And this pushed people basically to try to see, is nationalism by definition, this type of an ethnic exclusive nationalism and of course there is a very strong part of this and particularly in many of the western societies which are haunted by the fear of migration, by demographic decline, loss of population, this was something that was very powerfully mobilized and used by the right wing But secondly, you are going to this type of a different, much more emancipating nationalism in which first you are showing that you can integrate in your own societies, different groups. But secondly, what is very important is that you can define a collective goal. Uh In my view, this idea that we need a collective goal was so important. And this is why this kind of a demonstration of the power of liberal nationalism, this kind of idea of Being ready to sacrifice your life for something for community to which you belong that was demonstrated during the by the Ukrainians during after the Russian invasion, this brought back this previous thinking about nationalism and made many people to ask the question to what extent our total neglect to the power of nationalism is helping us or hurting us.
1: Mm. I think some skeptics of liberal nationalism or civic nationalism might say okay that's all well and good in theory but in practice ethnic nationalism a more closed nationalism is is often going to win out and so why bother with this fairy tale if this other story is is just more compelling to so many people what is the best response to that do you think
2: well listen it's a it's a very legitimate observation the problem is that democracy as a political regime itself is also exclusive The beginning of every democracy is who belongs to the political community. So from this point of view, the idea that we can participate in a democratic politics simply trying to ignore any other identity than basically our individual identity and individual choices is not making it so easily. And secondly, exactly because we have a proliferation of a different type of identity politics, both on the left and on the right, the question... Is there something that keeps us together in our differences in a political community? Is there something that makes us us of people who otherwise have so different political identities? In my view is becoming a very important question, because otherwise you have a kind of societies that simply live in a form of civil war undeclared civil wars in which you don't basically share anything with people next to you. And this is a great question. And in my view, while the fear that ethnic nationalism is always going to have the upper hand is also historically very legitimate, this kind of uh, insistence that different type of nationalism is possible and not simply it is possible, but this is one of the ways to create a society of diverse societies that can live in peace with each other is becoming, in my view, critically important, particularly in a moment in which suddenly the war is coming back to our life. We start thinking about issues which have been almost forgotten, and this is particularly true in Europe, which has been perceiving themselves as a post-sacrifice, post-war societies, seeing the continent as a place in which war is not possible anymore. And then you're asking, okay, but now when you see this kind of a new threat of a war, is there that keeping us together? Are we something more than individuals and group just populating the same areas and paying the same taxes?
1: It's interesting that the example that, you, that you're using of civic nationalism or liberal nationalism is Ukraine, both because Russia or the Russian authorities clearly deny that this is a legitimate nationalism at all, but also that part of the way that this particular nationalism was shaped was not just civic life, but it was forged over several years under threat of invasion and now during an actual war. Is it possible for this kind of nationalism to come about without that, right? Without someone denying that it exists or without threat of of military action or, or an invasion?
2: You no, know, But it is interesting because if you're going to look at a country like Poland, which is mm-hmm. extremely divided. in way divided like the United States with people who there is a major value divided at the heart of society. And at the same time, if you're going to see how they responded to this crisis on their borders, if you're going to see that in 7% of the households, they're Ukrainian refugees, you're also going to see this kind of inclusive nature of mm-hmm. this nationalism because this same... Polish right, which was extremely, by the way, harsh in the way they have been talking about Ukraine and the Ukrainians, suddenly realized that the very sovereignty of Poland is at stake and in the way they are going to treat all these people running out of this war is going to define also their future. Maybe at this moment there a kind of extreme tensions. It does not need to be only war. Mm. It could be the moment in which you're asking yourself, When the moment that sacrifice comes, it is for whom I'm ready to do it, why I'm ready to do it. And I'm saying this because from this point of view, Eastern Europe is a great example. You remember the same society like Poland, which during the refugee crisis in 2015, 2016, was protesting basically to welcome 20, 30,000 refugees of the Syrian war. Now we have almost 3 million refugees coming from Ukraine. So the selective nature of solidarity is very much at stake, but the selective nature does not need to be ethnic. And from this point of view, the fact that Poles open to the Ukrainians, and this is how they defined also their Polish patriotism, yeah. is something that is interesting. And of course it was triggered by the war, but I don't believe that it is going to be explained simply and that the war is the only type of a crisis uh, that can shape uh, such type of a sentiments.
1: Devon Krastov, thank you so much for taking the time. Coming up after the break, I'll be speaking to Yasmin about why nationalism is so politically powerful around the world and what some of the challenges to a liberal nationalism might be. As a reminder, all four episodes of the series will be available on the World Review podcast feed and online at newstatesman.com podcasts. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for £1 a week in the UK or $2 a week in the US by visiting newstatesman.com slash subscribe. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era, Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America.
2: He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick.
1: Maria Vilchek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our Audio Long Reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care,
2: Joining me now
1: is Yasmin Sirhan. She is a foreign policy writer at Time magazine and has covered and does cover journalist politics, foreign and domestic, all around the world. Yasmin, thank you so much for doing this and for joining me. Thanks for having me. One thing that I was thinking about in anticipation of this conversation is that. We see these ethno-nationalistic politics really work all, uh, we're seeing it all around the world right now. We have been for several years now. And yet, you know, o- often they're addressed to the quote unquote common Hungarian or American or in whoever the, the true person of the nation is who's been left behind or so on and so forth. And yet they don't actually address any of the issues that would affect that person in their day-to-day life, right? It's not about the price of milk. It's not about, oh, we're going to do something that will tangibly improve your life. So this is all a long way of saying, why do you think in your reporting and in your writing, have there been common denominators that you found that suggest why politicians return to this again and again? It's a great question, and it's totally true. I mean, this
3: is a trend that you see working, as you say, all around the world. And it's funny because those narratives are largely very similar, despite the fact that they market themselves as being so nation-specific, right? I mean, you have these leaders like Orban in in Hungary, Narendra Modi in India, Donald Trump in the United States, of course— all kind of parroting this notion of their nation first. And the reason I think that these narratives are so popular and we see them working time and again in, in these countries is because they're frankly easy. I think you don't need policy solutions to tell people that you're the party or the politician that, that is going to represent this greater national ideal. Like, you know, patriotism, as it were, or this in in the cases that you and I've just mentioned, this sort of ethno-nationalism, This I think perhaps more accurately called nativism, the sort of exclusionary kind of nationalism. You don't need specific policies to promote that sort of thing, but it is something that voters can hold on to. something's like this is a group or a community or an identity that I'm a part of, and it's something I can feel good about. And sure, price of milk is rising and perhaps price of gas isn't doing that great either. But Sure, there's loads of other issues, but hey, you know, at least I'm part of this group and this community that can latch on to that. And look, if I'm going to give Donald Trump credit for anything, it's that I actually do think he's given a lot of the Americans who support him this idea of community, especially when they're perceived as a sort of victim, whether it's a victim of cosmopolitan elites or victims of stolen elections or whatever. He's given them a sense of something to be a part of. And I think that's ultimately why these politicians latch on to that sort of nationalist narrative, because it's easier than providing solutions.
1: Would you say it's also connected, just listening to what you were saying just then, would you say that it's also often connected to the politics of grievance, right? Like this invitation to feel that you're a victim and there's, and someone else has done this to you and it's the people who are outside of your, you know, your nation. 100%. I think we
3: underestimate just how powerful a tool that grievance, political grievance can be for these people. And that's why you saw and you see it, we saw it January 6th and everything that's transpired since then with Trump's stolen election claims. We see it in Brazil with Bolsonaro. The election, it's running up to its second stage. But even before the contest had begun, he was already trying to stoke this politics of grievance, Mm -hmm. this notion that the elections aren't to be trusted, that they want to take away something from you. And I think that grievance is really important for these politicians in particular, because whether they win or lose power, they can use that sense of that, that collective grievance, that kind of identity that comes from it, to galvanize their bases, to support their allies, and ideally, to if they're facing legal trouble, to, to stoke up their supporters and say, look, this is a witch hunt and they're attacking us, they're attacking you. I think it's a really important political tool, and you're seeing it used all over. And I think that is definitely a big part of that, because it's hard to find things, that I think especially in the world that we live in today, that really tie communities together. I mean, we're so Mm -hmm. disparate. We're online. We're interacting with a lot of different people. But if you have this shared sort of thing, whether it's a victimization or, or some sort of wrong that was done to you, that can bind a lot of people, and I think people
1: underestimate that. So one of the things that this podcast series is asking is whether it is possible for people, pundits, politicians, what have you, who oppose that version of nationalism to reimagine what nationalism could be. Right. Is there a civic based nationalism or a more liberal, inclusive nationalism where your sense of belonging is still there, but it's not about religion or race or ethnicity? I go back and forth on this because on the one hand, I want to believe this is possible. On the other hand, that sort of simplicity that you were describing at the beginning, I think, is perhaps lost in the politics of civic nationalism. Have we ever seen a civic or liberal nationalism win when put up against the sort of nativism that you're describing?
3: I've long thought, and I observed this both in my time just being an American living in the U.S., but also in some of these countries I've covered, that it feels I think people are couldn't be faulted for thinking that the right at times, it feels like they have a monopoly on nationalism. If you picture a Trump rally right now, I'm picturing red caps and like American flags. And being, I remember visiting my family and moved from I grew up in the Bay Area in California to San Diego. And when I went to their neighborhood for the first time, there were loads of American flags outside people's houses. And I knew that there were sort of red pockets of of California, particularly in the South. And my initial thought, presumption was, oh, it it didn't help. Of course, I'd seen I was there during an election and I'd seen some signs that indicated to me where some of our neighbors, how some of our neighbors were voting. This was during the recall election for Governor Gavin Newsom. My initial thought was, oh, these are probably right wing families. And I remember catching myself in that moment because I thought, hey, hang on, like, why is it that we've... Allowed ourselves, or even allowed ourselves to have this perception that the right sort of has this monopoly, this hold on national symbols and nationalism writ large. And when you ask if there's a kind of left wing version of that, a sort of civic nationalism or patriotism, I can't think of too many modern day examples that I think have been really successful. And I think that's an indication that by and large, the left hasn't been as good at finding a narrative, a kind of nationalist, but still inclusive and compassionate and progressive narrative to match the right-wing ethno-nationalist narrative that we've seen over these last several years. And I think that's, that really is a problem, and I think it is something that can be rectified. I think one of the challenges, of course, is that when people think nationalism— mm-hmm. It's often, I think people think nativism. And there is a distinction, right? Nativism is inherently exclusive. And the left is probably very reluctant to latch on to any sort of narratives that are seen as us versus them, as leaving anyone out. You see this play out in the UK a little bit, too. I was struck when, so the main, all the British political parties have a conference every year. And I was struck by how there was a, not a massive news cycle, but certainly there was coverage of the fact that at Labor Party conference, they played the national anthem in a tribute to the Queen. Mm. And that had apparently never been done before, playing the national anthem. And apparently, Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader of the Labor Party, criticized it because he said, We're not excessively nationalist in the way that mm-hmm. Americans are. They have American flags in schools, they sing the national anthem. As an American, to me, I was like, That is such an easy way to make people feel part of something. And it doesn't need to be at the exclusion of others. If it's a civic patriotism, if you want to even use that word, a love of country that's rooted in recognizing its ills and making it better, you can utilize that to your own benefit. I think, yeah, it's something that the left hasn't been very good at,
1: but I think there's clearly a case for them to get better at it. In the first half of this episode, Ivan Krustev suggested that Ukraine right now is a really good example of this sort of civic nationalism or patriotism. That was obviously forged by an invasion, right? So I think it is possible, but what are the and what are the conditions that shape it? And also, how long will that last? And the other thing that even as I'm putting forth this idea of yes, let's have this civic nationalism, let's have this patriotism that I'm uncomfortable with is that I suspect that it still will always it it it, it still requires minority groups to be at the at the mercy almost of the majority group, right? The majority still needs to buy in. To this idea, I think, especially when we're talking about when the United States, like refugees or new immigrants, or if you're, you know, uh, yes, is wearing a shirt that says University of Palestine. So I'll say Palestinians <laughs> yeah. who, who don't have a state, to so that they where they can like safely claim and shape this nationalism. What do we do with that fact that we're still calling for something or asking people to imagine something where these power dynamics are perhaps fundamentally unchanged? It's a really good question, and I think
3: that is a challenge, right? And it's a it's a It's something that they need to think about and by they left when they're thinking about how to craft these sort of things. Because the last thing you want it to be is a sort of superficial patriotism, right? Mm -hmm. Like this notion of, oh, but we just love our country, it's awesome, there's no fault. No. In fact, there is a Martin Luther King quote that I think touched on this where he said, you know, I criticize America because I love her. I want her to stand as a moral example to the world. And I think a patriotism rooted in that, this idea of a country of for all of its citizens including those we disagree with mm-hmm. that we want to be compassionate to be progressive because these are often progressives that are putting forward this that, the ideas these are progressives putting forward this idea and inclusive i think you you just have to go about being really intentional with being like this is not a prescriptive kind of love of country or uh-huh. love of nation. Because at the end of the day, if you're a political party you're a politician, obviously you're running because you believe that you should be leading this country. So making right. the case that right. you like the country shouldn't be a, a controversial thing. Y- you can do it in a way where I think you are trying to create a vision of the country that lifts everyone up with it and tackles the unsavory parts of its history and mm-hmm. remedies the unsavory parts of its present. I don't think it's impossible. I think it will take a lot of work. When I think of examples, and this isn't necessarily in a political realm that I think do this well, this is going to sound like a weird one, but the England football team, Englishness, so <laughs> not to get like too in the weeds, but Englishness as a concept, English nationalism doesn't have too many outlets. And that's primarily because it's ensconced in wider britishness. England is the biggest constituent part of the UK. The UK's major landmarks are often English landmarks, London, Palace of Westminster, Buckingham Palace, etc. And it doesn't help of course that you've had nationalist unsavory types really try to seize on English nationalism and then have it be associated with things like anti-immigration, Brexit, etc. However, the England football team, and I guess I should confess that I am a fan of this team despite being an American, has been so good at almost creating this type of Englishness that anyone could latch onto, whether you're an immigrant to this country, born in England, an American transplant, and really support because it's a young team. It's a diverse team. It's a team that isn't afraid to put its values right on the pitch. This is a team that takes the knee before games, that wears rainbow flags on their arms during Pride Month, that speaks out, you know, about racial diversity in sports, but also for things like preschool meals for children when that was an issue here in this country. I'm not saying that football or soccer is the answer, but I think that's a model. You can have something that's inherently nationalistic. It's a national team, right? But it's something that has better than most things and certainly better than most parties been able to unite people because it just has that sort of common narrative. Now, I think the one challenge of course with politics is the politics will get in the way invariably. And we live in a time where, and I think this is particularly true in the U.S., where the opposing party and its supporters are often viewed very much as the enemy. And that is a challenge to any sort of unifying narrative. And I think that's where you're going to run into issues and that's where you have to be careful. How do you create a sort of patriotism that is appealing to them as well, even if the policies are not? You have to have both. And that, I think, is ultimately the challenge. But that's not an excuse for not having it because I think the only alternative then is that these left-wing parties, then their overarching narrative is to be the antithesis of their opponent. And that, as has been proven in many of these countries, isn't enough. You know, narrative can be really powerful. It can help. It's not everything, but I think it can be really powerful in bringing together and telling a nation's story, especially in its present. And if you don't have that, then you're the anti-Orban party, you're the anti-Trump party. And you need to have more, you need to give people more than just
1: not liking something else. Right, what are you for? We will leave it there. Yasmin, thank you so much for joining this conversation. Thanks for having me. Next week in episode two of Nationalism Reimagined,
3: so it was not a kind of old type of nationalist idea, but it was very fresh, it was very proud, it was a dreams of the dreamers, there was a lot of celebrations, it was very tangible.
1: We'll look at Hungary. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has, for decades, found his version of ethno-nationalism to be politically powerful. Is there another way for Hungarian politicians and for voters? You've been listening to Nationalism Reimagined, a special World Review podcast series from the New Statesman. I have been Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C., and this podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley and Mae Robson. Thank you for listening. Ready? Okay.